This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today. Another great episode for you. This is another one of my multi-part series on the Lender Series. Today's guest, he's a mortgage loan originator, loan broker, financier, money finder, whatever you want to call him. He's the guy you need to talk to. One of a number of guys here in the series that can help us find the right loan for your right mobile home park acquisition. Please help me welcome Judah Adarit. Judah, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the, uh, it's an honor to be on your show and on, on this podcast. Well, I'm, it's an honor to have you. This is our first time together on my podcast, but I met you on another webinar um, on another, I think it was for Riverside Title Abstract we put together yeah. uh, a nice little panel and show. So that was great. So I know you from that and know you from some other calls we've had, but for our audience who may or may not know you, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, what you do in particular, sure. and how, you, how you got an MHP. So my background has been in real estate, um, I would say for the last 10 years. I grew up in a family where I had a few siblings, a few brothers of mine that own and operate multifamily real estate in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, um, Pennsylvania, primarily. Um, so I grew up knowing about real estate. Uh, as soon as it was time for me to start kicking the tires, um, I had approached one of my brothers asking him, you know, what would he take me on as a, as part of those operations, if there's any room for me, um, he suggested me, you know, start with managing one of his properties, which I did so for successfully for a number of days <laughs> until I realized that that was not my forte and not something that I really saw myself doing long term. So, you know, I went on to ask him what else is there within the industry. Obviously, I would love to stay in the real estate industry. He suggested that I explore the world of real estate finance. Um, so I joined a great firm, uh, Eastern Union. They're a uh, pretty large, uh, uh, renowned shop based out of New Jersey and New York. Um, I trained under the president, Iris Lodowitz, in just originating, cold calling, literally just canvassing names, calling them up, hey, it's Judah calling from Eastern Union. I would love to take a crack at the next deal. Um, simultaneously training and learning more about the industry and watching other brokers, other senior brokers there, how they operate, the deals, how they get done, which banks are, you know, the banks to go to. Um, and it definitely helped that I had family that was involved in real estate. So I was kind of fed some deals that way and getting my feet wet. Um, alongside senior brokers, watching, learning, um, a ton of cold calling, literally built up a, a database over the next five years of, you know, a nice bucket of clients. And at the same time, obviously developing relationships with lenders on the other side of the aisle, figuring out which lenders are good for which deals. Uh, around, I would say, a year and a half into Eastern Union, I stumbled across my first cold call that 
the individual on the other line who is now probably one of my, uh, I would say, premier clients. I closed uh, over 10, 15 transactions with them. But it was a pure cold call. Called him. He's like, do you guys finance mobile home parks? And I was trained, you know, you just say yes, of course. And uh, we'll find the money. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he asked me, you know, what sort of amortizations do you see? And, and it was like, I, I really had no idea. I was just comparing it to the multifamily. I'm like, yeah, 30 year amortization. He's like, 30 year amortization. That's great. I'm getting typically from my local banks, 20 year amortizations. Um, sorry about that. Um, so long story short, I got him on a, on a call with a more senior broker. We brought in the deal. We actually got him a pretty aggressive offer. It was not a 30 year amortization, if I remember correctly, but it was a, it was a solid deal better than the bank offer that he had on the table. And throughout the process, I was intrigued by this asset class that even this other broker over at Eastern, as much as he was a senior broker, he had done one mobile home park or maybe two in his whole history. So I was like, hey, how come there's this asset class out there where there seems to be no other brokers, at least that I knew of, that specialize in that asset class and what's going on? Um, so I learned more about it. Uh, my client had told me about a couple of these conferences and shows that I should probably attend and learn more about the industry. So I did. I you know, learned about the industry ground up, literally um, found out how people buy these parks, what it costs to bring in a home, how lenders evaluate it, and then spent, obviously, as a mortgage broker, a lot of time figuring out and calling lenders that we already had relationships with and across the nation asking them, hey, do you guys, question number one, finance mobile home parks? When was the last time you financed a mobile home park? And how do you underwrite them? What type of parks do you look for? Do you like parks that park on homes, tenant-owned homes? As I was learning more, I knew questions to better hone in on and, and figure out which lenders would be a good fit for which particular deals. Um, and that's kind of how I fell in, you know, I literally fell in from a cold call into the asset class and fell in love with the asset class. Fell in love with the fact that there was no one else in it competing with me first and foremost, but obviously just from the fact that I was enamored with this whole different animal within multifamily. Like I, I like to tell people, Mo, you know, mobile home communities are part of the multifamily class, but it's kind of like when you go to the zoo and there's like, they have the certain type of animals on one side of the zoo, but it's in its own cage. It's not, you're not visiting the same exhibit. The multifamily exhibit does not have the mobile home park uh, asset class within it. It's, it's a, it's related. And a lot of the lenders, including Fannie, Freddie, CMBS will lend the mobile home parks or what they like to only lend the mobile home communities. But there's uh, definitely its own way of underwriting, their own way you have to really understand. There's a reason why there are so many lenders that don't lend on mobile home communities is simply because they don't understand it, not because the deals don't make sense and not because it's not a safe asset class. I think all of them know the default rate on mobile home parks has been the lowest out of every asset class in the nation. They know this, but they can't understand it. And to spend time educating lenders, I, I didn't have the time to do so. And I still don't. I wish I did. But it's more so finding the lenders that do understand that have done it. And um, it all really took off from there once I started doing deals for a couple of the bigger guys in the industry. Um, 
word got around, I, you know, I came to shows and they were introducing me to other potential clients. Um, and, you know, word of mouth really in within the mobile home park community really travels fast. Um, and at this point, I would say I financed over 200 transactions within the mobile home park space, but maybe closer to 300 by now. Um, I left Eastern Union in, you know, the, I would say the height of COVID, which was May of last year, decided that, that was the time for me to take the jump. I had the relationships with clients, relationships with banks, um, and kind of felt like, okay, the market might be a little bit slower right now. Let me take this opportunity to form my own company and, and start my own little shop here. I started together with my partner, Avi Weiss, who is my senior underwriter slash partner. So um, we started together in May. We have closed uh, a number of mobile home park transactions, I think over 20 um, in the last nine months. Um, and around 60 to 70% of our deal flow today is mobile home park transactions, whether it's purchases, refinances. So definitely a sign of how popular the industry has gotten. Uh, thank God how popular I've gotten within the industry. And um, more so, I think the, uh, the way that the economy was kind of affected by COVID led a lot of people to slow down on other asset classes. But as you know, good and well, mobile home parks just exploded out of the gate. Um, it was as if COVID came, injected mobile home parks with some other type of disease where everyone's just buying like crazy. So that's definitely helped a lot. And uh, we are rocking and rolling with a lot of uh, different transactions across many different states. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree with you on a lot of that. Lots to unpack there. So, but yeah, you're absolutely right that there's massive demand coming out of COVID. Um, I'd call it mobile home parks the darling of the COVID era because they seem to have been ejected with new money, new investors, new, new press, including new positive press to some degree. Um, yeah. Definitely appreciate that. I want to also clarify for our listeners too, kind of your role as the mortgage brokers, your company does not make the loan, your company brokers the transaction. You've, I come in, I'm the borrower. I'm a different borrower than the guy next to me or the gal on the other side. You, you place me, me the borrower with and my project and my property with the right type of lender. So with that in mind, I know you represent agency lenders. I mean, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, how many lenders in total? Um, and then they have other um, affiliated lenders that help uh, initiate those loans. How many different lenders do you have access to? And then tell us a little bit more about, you know, deal size, fee structure. And, um, and then after that, I got a couple more questions for you, but let's start with that. So, uh, it's tough to pinpoint exactly how many lenders we have a relationship with within the mobile home park space, you know, specifically. I would say <clears throat> starting with on the bank side, I typically deal with more national or regional banks. The local community banks, I might have a relationship here and there within, you know, Florida, obviously New York, New Jersey. But for the most part, clients that are buying deals in the Carolinas, Georgia, Texas, I don't necessarily have relationships with the local banks there. And sometimes there will be a deal that's brought to me from a client and he's buying a particular park or looking to refinance. And I'll say this particular deal for reasons that I'll lay out shortly might not be 
a good fit for the lenders that I have a relationship with, but definitely go into one of the local banks there, see what they'll do for you. Um, and that brings me to my next point as far as loan size. Given the fact that I am dealing with typically larger banks, more national, regional banks, um, they shy away from loans that are too small for them. Now, some banks too small might be $3 million. Might be already too small for them. There might be banks out there that are willing to do a million dollar deals or even a, a, a touch above, you know, below that. Um, I do have a lender that I've closed multiple transactions with. A national lender loves mobile home parks. Um, I've closed probably 30, 40 transactions with this bank alone. I would say five or six of them were below a million. So they're not shy about going on under a million. As long as the deal makes sense, they like the park, um, they'll be able to do that. So I would say around 15 banks I have a good, strong relationship with to lend the mobile home parks, uh, um, ranging from national, regional banks. Um, I do deal with, like you mentioned, Fannie and Freddie. I'm not a dust lender myself, even though I would love to be. Dust is basically the designated underwriter for Fannie and Freddie. There's around, I think, 15 or 20 dust lenders in the country. However, there's only a few that, again, really understand the mobile home park industry. As much as Fannie and Freddie set out their guidelines for what type of parks, which I can expound on also, what type of parks they'll lend on and what they look for, there are only a select few shops that I personally trust that know the industry, know what know what deals can be done and should be done with Fannie and Freddie. So I deal with probably, I would say, four or five of those dust shops on the Fannie and Freddie side. Um, and then I have relationships with around three or four CMBS lenders, which are Wall Street lenders, conduit lenders that um, I've done a number of mobile home park transactions with them. So I'd say all in all around 25 different lenders that I deal with on a weekly or monthly basis. Um, and depending on your deal, like you mentioned, I'm a loan broker, a particular client would come to me with a deal. I'm buying this park. I need to know how many pads are in the park. What's your purchase price? Again, purchase price doesn't scare me if it's small, but if it's too small or if I feel like it's a deal that I won't have a lender for at that size, I'll be very upfront and say, hey, this is a deal for a local community bank. Not, not that I would not love to do this deal. I would. I just don't have lenders to place it with. So, um, and then depending on the structure of the park, how many park-owned homes, how many tenant-owned homes, what the deal looks like, what the park looks like, I can then determine, hey, who are we going to for this deal? Are we going to Fannie Freddie? Does it fit the Fannie Freddie box? Because I feel like in almost everyone's eyes, Fannie Freddie is the vanilla cream of the crop loan that you want to get. But for the most part on acquisitions, at least I've found that um, most deals do not qualify for agency on acquisition. Because if you're buying a park, you're buying it for some value add that you see there. And typically they'll pick up on that value add as well and not really be that excited about the park in its current condition. Can you expand on that? Because I know, for example, you mentioned <clears throat> park-owned home, tenant-owned homes. I think in general, you know, the lenders, especially agency lenders, prefer less park-owned homes. Depending on the platform, I think it's 20% or less or 25% or less. But what other, what other criteria, if I misspeak, by all means, correct me, but what other criteria, and then those loans, I believe, are also non-recourse always. Um, 
with some bad boy carve outs, uh, but you still have to have a decent balance sheet, decent liquidity and, and background or experience. So if, if, if I'm coming in, it's my first mobile home park deal, I'm probably not a good client for you. Is that correct? Probably not a good client for Fannie. An acquisition. Correct. For an acquisition. Yeah. For an acquisition. Already the on the, yeah. Go if ahead. you already own the park, it's different. It's obviously a whole different story. But if you're coming to me, you're buying your first mobile home park. On Fannie and Freddie, it's definitely not going to fly unless you had owned a lot of multifamily. Like I've had some clients who transitioned from multifamily to mobile home parks that uh, since it is, quote unquote, the same asset class, Fannie and Freddie will look at that as if you have experience in that industry, which will allow you to get a Fannie and Freddie loan. But if you're coming in and you don't have any serious, you know, previous experience, you might have managed a park in the past, you have some knowledge of the industry, but you don't own any other parks, you definitely wouldn't be a, a you know, prime candidate for Fannie and Freddie. At that point, either I'll ask you if you have a potential partner here that might have experience, Would it might be worth it for you as a first time buyer, give up a little piece of your deal to have a partner that might not play a role bigger than just an advisor. Um, as far as having a partner that has experience, preferably that has some other agency Fannie Freddie loans. And then we can go ahead and get you a Fannie Freddie loan. Otherwise, I'll attempt to go to some of the other relationships that I have on the bank side. Balance sheet lenders tend to be less picky. Um, they want to know that you know the industry. They're not interested in just lending to a guy that's buying his first park but doesn't know the first thing about parks. So they'll want to know you know, who is this guy? What has he done? What does he know about the industry? But they definitely, when they're looking at his balance sheet, they're not as picky as far as, like you mentioned, Fannie and Freddie have net worth requirements. You would need to have a net worth equal to the loan amount. So if you're buying a park that would qualify for a Fannie Freddie loan, that means it's typically like a one and a half million dollar loan or higher. You got to have a net worth um, of one and a half million dollars. And a lot of times for a guy buying his first park, he's not there yet. So that can pose another challenge in going to Fannie and Freddie. Banks won't really care that much. They'll want to know if you have the equity to close the deal. Um, Let me touch know, on and, that. And, if I can yeah. touch on that too, because it's it's come up in some of my projects in the past and also some of my clients' projects. Is <clears throat> you have, even though it's a non-recourse loan, they're not underwriting you the same way that a recourse lender might. They're underwriting you from your experience, your net worth, your liquidity, and that experience needs to be in this asset class. So what you could do if, so for example, the guy in the next room, John Smith, if it's his first deal, it's a great deal, would otherwise qualify based on size, class of the park, tenant on home, park on home mix, metro, all those are their variables, but he's got insufficient borrower credentials. He could call a guy like me who's already been approved by Fannie Freddie and say, hey, Ferg, you want to be in on my deal? And I could sign the loan with him as an additional loan guarantor. And it's going to be non-recourse to me and him, except for the bad with carbides, which basically means he's paying me a fee to, you know, pay me a piece of the deal ownership in order to sign the debt. And I think the market rate on that is, what do you see out there? Five, 10% is the I would guarantor say five, 10%. Yeah, five, 10% of that signature. And it's really, just paying, it's really just paying for the signature of somebody who's really been, been pre-approved. And but right. if I'm that guy and I'm pre-approved. I can't just sign it and get out of, get out of Dodge. I have some, some obligation 
some onus on me to, quote, oversee and advise so that the bad boy carve-outs don't come in to bite me. And I'd like you to talk about those bad boy carve-outs and also if they're able to be negotiated and how. Because I've, I've seen them negotiated a little bit, but I've also seen them say, you can't know how to negotiate. These are template docs. You're not allowed to touch fanny docs. But sometimes <laughs> they'll cave a little. So you've yeah. seen more than me, I'm sure, as far as when they cave. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes here as to what I can get away with to <laughs> split the hook on that recourse. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to expound a little bit, Obviously, you know, I don't want anyone from Fannie and Freddie calling me after this uh, podcast and screaming at me. They don't like what we call, what they call a, a straw guarantor, which is basically somebody that's just hanging on by a straw that, like we mentioned, you're really just bringing them on to sign on the paper, but is not involved in the deal at all. If they know that or they pick up on that, they'll typically say, no, this doesn't work for us. The, they want this additional guarantor to be involved as a managing member um, officially overseeing management and, and making sure that this deal is running smoothly because even though it is an on-recourse loan and they're not leaning heavily on you because there's no personal guarantee, but kind of on the flip side of that, since it is an on-recourse loan, they need to make sure that, hey, whoever we're giving this loan to really knows what he's doing. And the way to evaluate if he knows what he's doing is A, experience in the asset class, B, does he have the net worth, liquidity, if something does go wrong, of, you know, someone comes out and wipes out a few home, fire comes and doesn't have insurance, proper insurance coverage in the beginning, whatever might happen at the park, does he have what it takes to get this park back on track? So they want to know that it's not just some straw guarantor that was paid a small fee to write a signature on the paper. Um, but typically, if you are paying that fee already, I would say to any new guy, demand some sort of involvement from FERD if he's signing on your loan, he should personally want involvement. He wants to make sure that things are going well. Um, and you should demand that. And, and therefore, we can relay that to the lender. Um, as far as the bad boy carve-outs, I would say you definitely would know more than me as far as, you know, from an attorney standpoint of what, you know, what they bend on and what, what exactly can be pushed and pulled. What I can say is, it's typically for a repeat borrower that they've grown some sort, uh, you know, a relationship with, and they feel somewhat comfortable with. When the conversation comes up and he says, "Well, as part of the bad boy carveouts, this, uh, you know, environmental, I've seen them kind of bend on, where part of the bad boy carveouts can be they're pretty strict when it comes to any environmental issue that might arise at the property." Um, which if they feel that you were negligent in addressing that can um, fall into a bad boy carve out. I've seen them be more lenient than that and not use broad terminology and have attorneys be able to hone in and say, no, no, no. W what does it mean negligent? What, what exactly, how do you define that? And so they won't tweak the actual docs. And I know exactly what you're saying. Anytime you ask them, they say, nope, these are template docs. You can download them from the internet. Like we're, we don't change them. So it's not about changing the actual language of the docs. It's more so, you know, delineating and explaining in more detail some of the language that's in there and they'll allow you to put that in. Um, but again, in I've in seen layman, it. In layman's terms, yeah. bad boy carve-outs are basically, it's a non-recourse loan unless I'm a bad person, a bad boy. Fraud, yeah. deceit, waste, maybe, you know, net gross negligence. Uh, but, if, but if the property is just, doesn't get off by a uh, hurricane yeah yeah or just 
you know, the market, the market tanks and, you know, the, the employer in my town goes under and I lose my clientele. Sorry, bank, but I tried. I give them the keys back. They take the property, but they can't take my house. They can't take my car. They can't take my porch, et cetera. That's basically what it means. So you're just, you've got to at least be legitimate. Now, what about, this is a question I have. I can't remember the answer on So I'm going to ask you, um, what about a, a loss on another property? Say you had a foreclosure on a different property or bankruptcy. Does that count as a bad boy failure on the subject property? No. Irrelevant. No, not relevant. It has to be a bad boy. You have to be being a bad boy on this particular property. Okay. So what about, what about criminal activity? Like if, if I'm paying so, my yeah, loans, so, but I'm, I'm over here and I get arrested for drug distribution. Does that same thing? Impact, same, same thing. thing. I mean, the, the, well, I would say that it, get your loans in order before you do that drug distribution. <laughs> but because they, you know, that obviously will come up on your background check, and they'll, they'll, you know, I've had actually a deal die at the closing table where they did the background check. For a lot of times, they'll do the background check literally a few days before closing, like finish all the searches. And it came up that this guy was uh, arrested for possession and, and uh, with uh, intent to distribute. And um, it wasn't exactly how it seemed. He was partying and whatever else might have happened, but that came up and killed the deal. So, but if that happens afterwards, if there's criminal activity, no. But I think there is something, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's something in the loan docs that say if there's fraud that's proven. Yes. On, on other properties, not on this property, but for yeah, I think white, like, I think white collar crime, white collar crime, financial crime is verboten, irrespective of which property is on. It's such a yeah. bad deal from a lender perspective. Right. Yeah. So that, then you're really a bad boy. And even though it might not be in particular on this property, they'll still uh, be able to, to enforce the recourse. Um, Let me ask you this. But yeah. you, you mentioned. 200 to 300 transactions. Have you seen the bad boy provisions come into play on any of those? Thank God, no. Yeah, I got another buddy who's a who's a lender. He mostly does multifamily, but I asked him that question. He's been doing it for 15 years, and he's like, no. But he, his career started in 05, and it's been kind of hot for a while. So he's like, a lot of, basically, yeah. he's like, if the payments get paid, <laughs> nobody looks around. It's when the bank yeah. doesn't get paid that all of a sudden they're like, Let's start looking under the hood to see if we should go after some recourse here. But yeah, I've never met anybody that's had it happen either, but knock on wood, but it's like, yeah. we make such a big deal out of it. And it's important, obviously, but it's, obviously. It's, uh, it's pretty rare. Yeah, it's definitely rare. And I think that that's why people push for the non-recourse loans <coughs> because on a, you know, as, as, as much as there are bad boy carve outs, but that is so rare for them to actually be enacted that, um, People love, obviously, the the, the agency loans, um, and just that you know, for the audience to know, there are bank options out there with non-recourse. Um, there are some banks that have slowed down, you know, tremendously due to COVID. That um, even when they're restarting, they're you know at lower leverage, sixty-five percent, seventy percent leverage, as opposed to agencies that are you know known for going to 75% leverage, 80% leverage, buying a deal, a lot of times that can mean all the difference in the world getting instead of 65% LTV or getting 80% LTV. Um, but there, there are lenders out there. I'm doing a deal now with a, a lender based out of, um, it's a bank out of, mid, out of the Midwest that 
has a non-recourse option at 65% leverage and at 75% leverage, only 25% recourse. I know as you're as an attorney, you're going to tell me, well, that's the only part that matters is that 25%. But <laughs> it definitely, it sounds better for sure. And I think, I think that it, it, it could come into play also where if someone's not nervous that his property is going to go totally under, um, you know, it might, it might ease them going into only a 25% recourse loan. Yeah, I wouldn't um, be worried about that. I mean, it's, you'd have to really screw up your deal to lose 76% of the value. Yeah. I mean, you flush your equity real quick, but 25% recourse isn't that painful. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, I've never had 25. It seems like a dream. Um, but I want to talk about COVID for a minute because I, I called you probably two months ago to look at that deal in St. Louis, and it was 2.8 million, so it was a good size deal for Fannie Mae or, you know, small balance sheet stuff. But the, the reason I went with a local lender instead of, instead of one of your um, agency lenders in that instance was because of the COVID reserve. So to me, that's a game changer. Um, it's getting, it's going away to some degree, but I, I personally chose the recourse over non-recourse because I was able to get uh, no COVID reserve in that instance on a local lender um, and I'm going to push the rent a little bit and I'll go agency here in about two, three years. Um, hopefully the rates won't go up too high. I mean, I'll look at the worst decision, but tell, tell us about that COVID reserve and, and how it's, how it impacts, you know, the transaction. In my case, it impacted, it impacted my capital raise by a couple hundred thousand dollars extra. So I was like, well, that's, that was the other reason. like recourse, like I got to raise how much I had to raise plus another 250,000, like, I only got so much time. I want to make sure I get that done. So it, it was a, it was a deal decision point in my deal hopper. Yeah. So that's a great point. There is COVID reserves came into play back when, you know, a month probably into COVID when everyone started to realize that it's not going to be just a few people getting sick. It's really going to affect our economy in a way, um, which caused, mostly the agency lenders, some banks as well, obviously put in their uh, COVID reserve, but there's, depending on the leverage and depending on the size of the deal, those COVID reserves were pretty hefty, which basically means out of your loan proceeds, you're going to get a, you know, a three, you're buying a park for $3 million. You're getting a $2.5 million loan. Um, you know, um, your payment, your monthly payments on that loan. I don't have my mortgage calculator pulled up in front of me, but they're going to take your monthly payments. And depending on the size of loan, on that size loan in particular, in the beginning, it was 18 months held back of principal and interest payments. So in your instance and in many other instances, when people are looking at a deal and I'm like, yep, I can get you 75%, 80% leverage from Fannie Mae on this deal. And people are like, great, awesome. All right, but once you factor in the COVID reserves, you're not anymore at 80%, you're at 72%. You're not anymore at 75%, you're at 68%. And you've got to pay, if you're, if, you're, if you're doing a syndication like I was in this you're deal, paying, I've you're got paying to pay pref on that money. an 8% preferred return on money that's sitting in a piggy bank at COVID yep. for 18 months. And then to get it released, I got to go through the machinations of the process, which you know it shouldn't be too onerous, but it's not a guarantee. So that it's, it's definitely yeah. a, it's kind of feels like when you look at a car commercial and they say 2% interest, 
2.3 APR. Remember, it's like, wait a second, which one's the real number? It feels like 80 LTV. Well, not really, you know. So it's, it's good to it's good no, to understand. That's really the whole, what it was. Whole facts, right? Yeah, and and I always from the beginning made sure to write that in bold in my email. Like when I'm sending a quote out to a client, yeah, you a great quote. Rates then were ridiculously low. You're talking about, you know, three and a quarter rates or less. Um, and I would write, you know, loan amount is 80% LTV, whatever that number was. But keep in mind, here are your COVID reserves based on where the rate is today, based on that loan amount, your COVID 18 months is going to be X. Um, there has also been on larger loans, it was 12 months, um, you know, loans above 6 million. But it was still pretty crazy because if you think about it, the larger the loan, the larger the payment. So it's 12 months, but yippee, I'm still, paying, I'm still holding back. It's a million yeah. bucks of extra. I mean. Man, I, I had a client that bought a deal. We did not have any bank options for him. He's strictly a non-recourse guy. Um, it was a multifamily deal, not a mobile home park transaction. But he was buying a deal for uh, $27 million. Uh, $27 million loan, sorry. His COVID reserve was over $3 million. Just sitting there with nothing, you can't touch that money. So his way that he looked at it was, hey, I have CapEx that I plan on doing on this property. I plan on doing around $2.5 million in CapEx. I'll hold off from that whole project until I get back that money. I'll use that money once I get it. So he raised the same amount of money because he planned on raising that two and a half million in CapEx. He used the quote unquote CapEx raise money to actually close and his CapEx money he's waiting for, um, which I think he's around two, three months away from getting that. So um, I think what happened was they saw that A, you know, not much, not as bad of an effect as they thought it would have, did it actually have on our economy and on our properties. There are some areas that got hit harder than others with collections, but for the most part, there were, you know, properties were performing well. Obviously we know within the mobile home park community, collections, if if anything got better for the most part, because a lot of these stimulus packages and stimulus money came in, you'll have a park here and there that show not so strong collections. And a lot of people, a lot of tenants just taking advantage of the fact that they know that it's you know, COVID out there. And there are some though that are really struggling and um, definitely are having a harder time paying. But I think overall, the effect that it had in, on collections was not as great as they, they thought catastrophe was coming. Properties are going to be going underwater. Um, so it's that together with the fact that uh, with the vaccine and people getting back to work and slowly getting back to the pre-COVID days, um, they're definitely lightening up on those COVID restrictions. They lighten up across the board as general um, rule that they're not doing 18 months anymore. It's it's 12 months of PNI um, on deals above uh, three million. It used to be between three and six million was 18 months. It's it's just 12 months above six million. It's down to nine months and potentially six months. And then as of last week or two weeks ago, I posted on LinkedIn. They came out with, you know, not, they're not screaming this out to the public, but in particular cases, and I actually just had an instance yesterday where we got approved for six months of interest only on a deal. So it was a nice size transaction. It was with a strong borrower in a strong MSA. 
properties cash flowing nicely, strong, showing strong collections. We went in and said, hey, we would like to request one of those waivers that you guys uh, said are available. And um, in that case, it was six months of, of interest only, which is a far cry from 12 months of principal and interest. That's the, I want to make sure they clarify, that's the COVID reserve portion of six months. Because yeah. six months IO is not uncommon. I just got caught on five yeah. IO, right? No, definitely. It's, right. it's, yeah, it's yeah. the six month IO reserve. COVID reserve in, in lieu of a 12 to 18 month principal and interest COVID reserve. Correct. Yeah, this deal happened to, it, it's, it's a loan, a 10 year loan, which carries with it five years of interest only. So that was part of the argument also is it's interest only payments, which I've made that argument from when they started, you know, you were having, you had deals that were full term interest only, and they were still taking a COVID reserve principal and interest, which just, it was uh, kind of ludicrous, but, um, and I have another buddy of mine, another mortgage broker um, who told me he just got approved on a deal for at at 70% leverage my deal that I just, spoke about was at full 80% uh, leverage. He had a deal just now at 70% leverage where they waived the code reserves entirely. Makes sense. So, when you yeah. say full, to clarify too, the maximum on acquisitions through agencies is 80% LTV and on refinance, it's 75, but sometimes it gets down to 65 or even 50. So on, is, that, is that accurate? Yeah. On refinances though, really depends where, and it depends on the story. Um, I've gotten 80 on refinances okay. as well. Yeah. Um, I've been lied to recently. <laughs> what did you say? I've been lied to recently because I, I was told at <laughs> 75 because I they had me at 65. I said, how about 75? They said, okay, but that's the max. And <laughs> yeah. Apparently not. So, No, we've got an 80. Um, it's it's really about the story that you tell. It's, it's really, if you have a park that you bought two years ago, you haven't done much to it. And all that happened was, you know, COVID and cap rate compression. Yeah. Then they'll say, "Hey, no, 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 we're not doing more than seventy-five. But if there's a story there, you increased occupancy, you brought you brought up your NOI a nice amount. There's a story to be told. There's definitely instances where they'll go to eighty on a refinance. Um, so that's great news about the COVID reserves. They're definitely lightening up. They are definitely open to giving waivers on select deals, um, which will make it a lot more attractive. If you weren't the only guy that." came to me for a loan and uh, you know once i quoted a fanny loan you know they turned it down to go with a recourse option there were plenty of instances where i would say pre-covid i was doing 70 percent agency 30 percent bank or maybe 75 uh you know yeah probably around 70 30 and now it's probably 50 50 due to the fact that there's you know a lot of banks out there that uh, didn't have the COVID reserves, didn't scrutinize collections as much as the agency have been doing recently. There's instance, you know, there are cases where agencies will ask for bank statements, which they've never uh, historically done. But now, when you're presenting a deal, especially a refinance, they'll say, "Hey, can we see the collections in a bank statement?" Which a lot of banks will be fine without. They'll be, you know, they know the collections might not be as strong as they should be, but they. They trust in the asset class and they trust in you and they know that things will turn around. Um, so definitely a, a nice amount of deals have been going bank because of a variety of reasons, but a, largely in fact to the uh, COVID reserves. That's good stuff. You to tell me before we part with two of our listeners, 
as a borrower, what do I need to do to get myself teed up and ready for both an acquisition? Obviously, we talked about not your first deal or get a good co-guarantor. But what do I need to do to an acquisition on a refinance to make sure I go through this process and get approved, frankly, but just go through and get approved and, and execute as smoothly as, as possible? Okay. So as far as what you need to prepare for me? In, in, in general, like, I mean, so for example, having clean books and having, you know, rent manager equipment is better than having loose leaf or, or a checkbook yeah. ready only, right? That's one thing I, I know you need if you're going to get go through this process. What are some yeah. other things you need to do to set the success? Yeah. So I would say both on a purchase and a refinance, obviously easier to do this on a refinance since you own the park, but even on a purchase, as much as it might seem silly, put some lipstick on that park. Make sure that the there's no trash laying around. Make sure that the you know the leaves are blown. Make sure there's some new bushes planted. Make sure that there's nice signage at the front of the property. Um, all of that can make a world of a difference, especially when it comes to mobile home parks. Because um, I didn't expound on this earlier, but agencies, one of the things that they love to say is they'll lend the mobile home communities, but not a mobile home parks. They want to see a community. They want to see a nice place to live. That's why they have kind of their checklist of paved roads, curbs, you know, driveways, uh, skirted homes. They want to see a community. They don't want to see the, the old stigma of the trailer parks. So as much as it might seem like lipstick, but putting a park into a different light for when a lender is going to drive through there is can make the world of a difference. I've had, I can't even count how many times that we went through a whole process, bank came to do an inspection. Um, and I always try to make sure to be down there at every inspection. I, I try to go down a day before to scout out the park and tell the owner, hey, you got to do X, Y, and Z before the lender shows up in the morning. But there are times that I'm, I'm not able to get there or I got there too late and I'm driving through with the lender and I'm like biting my lip because there's just trash all over and one tenant and it's not really your fault because it's the tenant owned homes and he can possibly do whatever he wants and not follow the exact park rules and regulations. But if you warn the tenants like, Hey, I have a bank inspection in two days, let, 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 let's work together. I'll help you clean up some of this stuff. Let's get some of the trash out of here. Even, you know, go to Home Depot and cover some of those hitches with some little contraption. Um, every little thing that you can do to a park can, can make the difference of getting an agency loan or not getting an agency loan in, in a bank world. Sometimes it can affect rate where a bank decided they're going to give you a 4% rate because we portrayed this park as being a very nice park. They drive through it and they're like, this place is a, with, you know, without using the terminology, they're going to then say, we'll do this deal, but you know, it's going to be at a four and a half percent rate. All because someone didn't spend the time putting lipstick on this park. It costs you $2,000, get a landscaper. You're going for, I've had so many times where a client is cashing out a half a million dollars on this park. So you're cashing out a half a million dollars, take 2000 of those dollars and get a landscaper to come down, put bushes at the entrance, put a nice little sign, uh, clean up the trash, have your tenants send a notice, tenants, please park in your driveways. It can make the world of a difference. So yes, having your books in order, obviously, is first and foremost, they want to see clean books. They want to see a nice P&L. 
They want to see a rent roll that has the tenant names and the lease dates and everything that all does very well for you. But there's so many times that I've been frustrated where I've told clients, hey, we have an inspection in a week. Next week, Monday is the inspection. Try to make sure everything you know, is in order. And I'll show up on Sunday and have to call them and say, hey, you know, we got to get someone down here you know, pronto to clean up this, the, even just a pile of garbage that's sitting outside a tenant's home. So about, I would say road, that's the What about road repairs? They were significant. Um, if you got twenty five dollars or $30,000 of road work, do you, I mean, that's going to, I think typically it makes sense to do it because it's going to impact your cap rate and your appraisal, let alone the interest rate. Mm-hmm. But that's a bigger expense, obviously. How much does that move the needle? It doesn't impact the NOI, you know, one bit over the historical T3 or something, but it definitely changes the, you know, atmosphere when you do the park inspection. Would you recommend doing that or is it not worth it? I would say depending on this, the the scope of the work. Um, A lot of times, if it's really that bad, you have to figure that most of the agency loans are going to come along with a, an immediate repair. And they're going to say within six months, we need you to repair these roads. And they're, they're going to hold back $20,000 from your loan proceeds. So what did you gain by not doing it now? Exactly. You're not getting that $20,000. They're going to hold it for you. You're paying an interest now on that $20,000. And you have now to go out and do that without the money in your pocket. I mean, go do the work, make sure that that's done. Because like you said, more so not to the rate, not to the LTV, more so just for an appra- on an appraisal, you know, that can that can bump down your your cap rate from a six cap to a five and a three quarter cap if the appraiser is able to drive through without his coffee spilling all over. Exactly. And just for our listeners, that that's typically called a PCA or a property condition assessment, which is basically a home inspection on steroids. And the lender will say, You've got ABC problems, it's a dollar or two dollars and three dollars for a total of six, we're gonna hold six back. If and when you do it. We'll give you the $6 back, kind of like construction draw. Um, I just got one back two weeks ago. And I did what you I took your I took your advice in advance because I knew you'd say that. And I did the road work. <laughs> Guess how much my PCA was for a 54 pad park? Total value. 1200 bucks. Zero. No way. Lenders. So you had all of Lenders said first one I've ever seen. Started. First one you've ever seen, zero. I cut, I put, I painted every, I painted all 52 houses. I cut all the oh, tongues off. I put in okay. 52 driveways. We paved the streets. We put in a playground. We painted the fence. The guy came through and he said, it was, he said, it's going to come back clean. It was a preliminary. I said, how clean? He said, I don't want to commit, but it's a zero. <laughs> he said, I've never seen it happen. I said, good. That's what I was going for. But I got another part. Like, I, got, I got some more significant road work. I'm like, well, I'll do it. But that's amazing. Anyway. Yeah. I would say that's what I was going to say. Like if, if you did all that, chopped off all the tongues and, all the homes are skirted and like, you know, the $1,200 I was going to say was like for skirting some of the homes, repainting some of the homes, yeah. but that's amazing. Yeah. There's um, I've seen as low as I think 1200, 800. I had a one park, but yeah, typically they'll, they'll ding you for repairing some roads. Um, if they see a water leak, they'll assume there's some, you know, pipes that have to be replaced. They'll ding you for that. So whatever I saw seventy, I saw done. seventy-five thousand on one. You've probably seen more. I saw seventy-five thousand on one. It wasn't. I was the seller, so I didn't. I wasn't, and I had, and it wasn't. And the road was. I thought the road was okay, and I sold it. And sell, the buyer thought it was okay. Well, the the lender made him fix it. It was like seventy-five thousand bucks. Like, yeah. You know. 
Yeah. I mean, that's another thing where I believe I bring value. Um, when clients ask me, you know, Hey, I can, I can go to, you know, hunt mortgage or one of these dust shops myself. What do I need you for? It's a common question that I get. Um, and the answer is it, it's a, the hand holding and knowing the process, knowing the bumps in the road, knowing how to present a deal and what to push for. But sometimes more importantly is, is there's, you know, showing up at an appraisal and showing up with the PCA engineer <laughs> can make, you know, it's not about buttering them up or buying them a drink. Part of that is, but part of it is, is they trust me to a certain extent where I'll come through there and the guy's like, oh my God, these rows look like, you know, I almost can't drive through them. They're like, eh, it's only one little part. Like, look, look at that part. And <laughs> it's just this one little part. And, you know, it probably just happened now for the winter. And, and I'll see the results in the report. Like you'll literally see where a whole note, you know, one part of the road seemed to be in bad condition might've been due to winter conditions. Like they're looking to help you, but they're not going to make up stuff by themselves. That's not what they're looking to do. So a lot of times that can make a world of a difference. An appraiser, uh, you know, drove through a park one time. And as, a, as we're driving through together, I was asking him, well, what cap rate do you think this is? Are you thinking? And he's like, I think probably like a six cap. I'm like, really? And I took him across the street to another park right across the street, which I know had sold for like a five and a half cap. It was a much nicer park. But just doing that and driving him across the street and saying, hey, this is the park that you'll have anyway on your comps. Might as well get a feel for it. Um, and I said, this is, you know, we are their competition. So we are going to be able to raise rents. We're going to make this park nicer. And we got that cap, we, you know, we got that cap rate slightly down. So that's definitely a big part of where, as a mortgage broker, we'll bring value to your table is, is making sure that different things along the process, which can be massaged. Um, you know, there are some <laughs> brokers out there um, now sitting in jail for massaging the numbers. That's not something that we'll do. We're not going to sit there and massage your numbers, but I'll massage every other part of the deal. And I'll present the deals in the best possible light for lenders to then get hungry for the deal and start bidding on deals. You know, that's the best. If you have a couple of banks and they know about each other and they know, hey, you know, I'll they trust me. Well, I'll tell them, hey, I have a bank that's offering me a 4% rate on a 30 RAM. You're not winning this deal with what you offered. And suddenly they get more aggressive. So that's obviously, if you have banks bidding on your park to kind of get a get the loan on there, you know you've done a great job. Sounds great. Dude, this is lots of great information. Where can people reach you? How can they contact you after this episode? Sure. So easiest is on my cell. Um, you know, I have a work phone. It almost doesn't ring. So it's. Uh, I would say people should reach out directly on my cell. It's uh, 848-222. So that's 222-0738 is my cell. Or they can email me at judah at princetoncapgrp.com. So short for Princeton Capital Group, princetoncapgrp.com. Uh, and uh, we can always take a look at anything anyone is looking at and uh, let you know what our thoughts. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Judah. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for it. Bye now. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening.
Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.